0: Well, happy Sunday. (laughs) That was the first time we did a happy Sunday. We usually say happy Lord's Day or blessed blessed Lord's Day or blessed Sunday. Happy day. (laughs) Um, We are thankful that you are here to join us, uh, to join with us uh, for worship. And thank you to the worship team for leading us um, in our songs um, for... um, our members and our elder to lead us in our prayers. All all of that is part of why we gather together. um, And now we turn to the scriptures. Um, All of it being a worship unto the Lord and a meditation upon uh, His goodness, especially in the giving of His scriptural truth to us. I I don't know if you've thought about that. Just as kind of a a fun thing at our flock this last Friday, I just asked everybody around the room to uh, just uh, share how many different languages that they can at least get buy-in, and I'm shocked at how many languages. And you could do that; you could ask a bunch of people around you. But right, like uh, if you if you you know went through high school here in the U.S., you had to take a foreign language. I took French. Bonjour, right? So that's, about, that's about all I got for you, um, right? Some of you guys took Spanish, which I wish I took because I think that would be much more helpful, especially living in Southern California. Um, others knew uh, Chinese or, and different variation, whether it's uh, Mandarin or Cantonese, right? Like, we know all these different languages, and one of the things that we discussed was how, uh, ultimately, the purpose of language, human language... It's not even simply to communicate with one another, which is very significant and important. It, it is to capture ideas, to capture emotions, to capture thoughts, because ultimately the greatest gift that language gives us is the capacity to think about who God is and what He has said to us. It's the this is the scriptures, there's a reason why everyone should learn how to read. Is the scriptures, This is the reason why we need to be better at our languages and more proficient in terms of understanding and expressing what words mean, what phrases mean, and why we say the things that we say and the way that we say them. It is the Word of God in His special revelation, in His Word that is the basis by which um, we understand life and purpose and salvation. And, And it is exactly the Word of God that we turn to now Um, because uh, that is the place that we begin. And the curious thing that I'll mention as we kind of walk through uh, this chapter 8 of the book of Job, and this is Bildad, right, the second in command of Job's three friends. He's probably the second oldest, and he has some words to say. And as I've mentioned before, we all know of Job's calamity. In a singular day, in one terrible day, he loses everything. He loses seven sons and three daughters. He loses all of his possessions. He loses literally everything that would point to a hopeful future. And then his, his skin breaks out and health is lost. And he's sitting on an ash heap outside the city gates because he is unclean, separated from all humanity. This is Job from the greatest man of the East reduced to nothing. And in this moment... We begin to hear from his friends after seven days of sitting with him. We've heard from Eliphaz who begins gently but makes uh, an implication that these things happen because you must be entertaining sin. God is not a God that lets kind of random things happen to us. It has an intention, a purpose. It has to do something with what you have done. He's a little kinder and older and gentler. And then we get to Bildad, the moralist. He's a little more brutal, straight to the point. He's not going to ask stuff about, why well, you become impatient with me. That's not where he begins. He begins by talking about, you are a big windbag, right? And he just lets him have it. It's going to get worse when the younger, Zophar, steps in. But Bildad is our topic this morning, and his message of moralism, of, rig- of rigid religionism, of doing what is right because the right is the most significant thing and there is nothing else. And a lot of that is going to be true. Um, God's righteousness, His standard of righteousness cannot change. Our unrighteousness is absolutely a reality. But the question is then how do we bridge that gap? And I think the religionist, the moralist, is going to say you need to improve yourself. You need to make yourself a little bit better. You need to get a little closer to who God is and His righteousness. So, as we look at uh, Romans, uh, I mean, sorry, Romans. We should look at Romans, right? Job chapter 8. Oh, sorry, the thing's not on. We're going to see just three elements of Bildad, the moralist argument. First, he's, gonna, he's simply saying, Job, you need to accept God's justice upon you. God, accept God's justice upon you. Secondly, he's going to say, You need to see God's judgment. You need to see that this is indeed God's judgment, and this is, this is the way that God has always handled his business in the world that he has created. And finally, you have an opportunity here, Job. You can seek God's reward. If you do what is good, God's going to reward you again. That's a rare opportunity. But you have it. And this is Bildad. So imagine this. Um, Bildad has built a theology that is uh, in some ways accurate. His theology is built on two simple facts. God is absolutely just and God is absolutely sovereign. Meaning that God only does what is righteous and good and must punish that which is wicked. That, that, is, that is what he is. And he doesn't ever compromise in what is right. The second thing is that God is absolutely sovereign. He is in perfect control. That whatever comes into your life, God has orchestrated your life in this direction. Like a screenwriter, he has written your play in exactly this way. He is surprised by no circumstance, difficult or good, that comes into your life. Those are the two principles, the two pillars of Bildad's worldview. The problem is not that these are untrue. This is absolutely true. If we want to talk about God's righteousness, his justice Right? It is so absolute that God must destroy what which is evil. Not he chooses to mostly, but he must. Otherwise, he is not a just God. Jesus says that every spoken, misspoken word, right? Every wrongful thought must be judged and judged in full. If it is not judged in full, then that judge is not perfectly righteous. And that judge cannot be perfectly righteous God. True. Is he sovereign? Absolutely. And in fact, we've mentioned that whether it's Job or his friends, there's not a single person in any argument that's presented in the book of Job that implies anything short of this is God's hand. Job doesn't say, hey, this is, this is, this is God's hand. Uh, or this isn't God's hand because God doesn't do stuff like this. He's a loving God. He's a no, no that's, our, that's our day, our modern argument of making love the only thing that God is. Now, in their day, in, in each statement, in each argument presented, every single one holds rigidly and steadfastly to the fact that God is an absolute control of everything even the difficult things in life even our suffering God has allowed it God has sent it God has orchestrated it and even in the book of Job we saw that God is the one that initiates right in the throne room of of, of uh, in the throne council with his angelic beings including Satan he's the one that says Satan have you considered my servant Job to initiate a dialogue that would result and test him out and you'll find his faith to be unshakable. And that's exactly what is taking place. Job doesn't know that. His friends don't know that. They're interpreting everything in light of what they see. Bildad is not wrong that God is absolutely just. He is not wrong that God is absolutely sovereign. The problem is those are the only two pillars of his theology. That is all he knows. And you'll see, he has no room for grace. Because what's grace for when God is absolutely just, and sovereign. There's nothing else to say about it. And this is the worldview of Job's friends. They might apply it slightly differently, but this is the framework by which he operates. In fact, this is the framework by which all rigid religions operate. Islam operates this way. right? In fact, if that most religions um, that believe in a singular God operate this way. They believe that if God is absolutely holy and absolutely sovereign, then you do what you do and God will pay you back. Pay you back bad for bad, good for good. And so at the very least, you should try to do a little more good than bad and let God sort it all out at the end because he's sovereign and you are not. This is Bildad, the rigid moralist. And as we unpack his argument, I think we'll see in there two things that we need to constantly remind ourselves one we'll see in him the very legalistic argument that we sometimes make ourselves because he's not wrong God is perfectly righteous he's not wrong that God is perfectly sovereign we'll also see in him that element that is most lacking he does not go back to God's special revelation to his scriptures to see how does God how does God work out the salvation of sinners like you and me. If he's perfectly righteous, he cannot let us get away with this. How can this be worked out? And that's our topic this morning. So let, let's open our time at a word of prayer. We'll look at uh, chapter 8 of the book of Job and uh, examine the argument of Bildad the moralist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather um, together in worship of you, May it be your scriptures that, again, instruct us and um, start to formulate, Lord, how we should understand our God. Father, teach us not to diminish those things that are your perfections, whether it is your sovereignty or whether it is your righteousness, your justice, your wrath. Those things are true and absolute, but that's not all you are, Lord. And as we begin this holy week, as we begin today on Palm Sunday and we look forward to to Resurrection Sunday next week we are reminded that where your your righteous wrath and your divine love meet is on Good Friday at the cross. And that we have life not because we have ever deserved it or because we cleaned ourselves up enough or because the weight of our good has slightly outweighed the weight of our bad but simply because you have extended your grace and love to us when we didn't deserve it. And so Father, we do want to walk in righteousness not because it earns anything with you but because you are a worthy God and a tremendously gracious and loving Father. And you had in all of eternity this plan to rescue sinners like us. So help us as we look to your word, as we look to the argument, to catch the very misinformed or misapplied theology that we often ourselves gravitate towards and remind ourselves constantly through your scriptures and through your revelation that your justice and your love meet at the cross. We pray these things and ask for your blessing today, this week, right up to our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's begin. This is chapter 8, and Bildad is, this is his first statement he has just heard Job declaring that he doesn't understand and I want to make some things clear as we kind of step into this right Bildad is responding to Job who has just responded to Eliphaz Eliphaz is implied that there might be some sin because God doesn't just do random right suffering on people that are good and Job's response is man I, I don't know what I might have done that is bad so take a moment right to think about where Job is coming from so imagine, as, as far as you know, there was no particular sin. There was nothing that you had done. And it's not that Job is declaring himself sinless. He is simply saying that nothing that he could think of ha- would rise to the occasion that God should snuff out his family and his life and give him sores, make him injured, and just suffer and suffer and suffer. He can't think of it. He'd rather be dead than experience this. And he's starting to ask why. Not, he's starting to ask, how can God be a loving God? That's not what he's asking. He's not asking, right, um, God, if you are just, why are you doing this? It's so unfair. That's not what he's asking. He's asking simply, I don't get the purpose of this. I don't understand this. So from his perspective, his suffering is not connected with sin, but Already one friend has suggested that it is, and this individual suggests even further that it must be. And when they are coming towards you that way, what would it feel like when you're convinced, like, listen, my cancer is not because of sin. It's not. And they're like, whatever, man. All I know is is the way that the Lord operates this universe. What would it feel like? Well, that's what Job feels. And so he overflows with this kind of, you know, um, a um, uh, uh, near angry response to say, you, you guys are not helpful friends. And he expresses, what I particularly like, is he expresses this idea that it is God who can pardon him. It, it is an idea that is not so strong in the argument of his friends, but is clear in Job. Look, look at the last part of, um, of the previous chapter in verse 20. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why am I here arguing and wondering about what is going on if I've sinned, right? Isn't there some provision in verse 21? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? If there is sin, can you not, the God of this universe, take this away? There is a depth to Job's theology that he recognizes the same thing that Bildad right, Zophar, Eliphaz will argue that God is absolutely righteous. Job recognizes that. But Job has not just those two pillars, not just his righteousness and his sorrow, but his grace. And he knows he won't deserve it, but wherever he has sinned, God has the capacity to pardon him. He's not sure exactly how that works out in terms of his need to pay for his sins, but he knows by faith That he could trust this righteous God to grant to him righteousness. And it'll sound awfully like Abraham when we get to Romans chapter 3 and 4, right? Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. Well, we begin here with Bildad saying, Job, the problem is you are not taking seriously God's justice. This This is the answer to your question of why everything's happening. You need to accept God's justice, starting in verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? This is great. He's just literally saying, Job, you know, you're not accepting the justice that God has poured out upon your life. Um, You're just the windbag. Your mouth is a great wind. Unlike Eliphaz, who begins at least with kind of a tactful question, hey, are you going to be um, offended if I bring this up to you? He just dives right in. He says, okay, my turn. Eliphaz is done. I think you're done. Let me explain to you what's going on. You're a windbag, All right? You speak foolish." It's like you don't even understand what's going on. He is critical of Job's questioning of anything that has come into his life. Again, affirming God's absolute sovereignty. This is clearly God's hand, but leaning in on God's righteousness. Like God just doesn't do stuff randomly like this, Job. There's always a clear pattern. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. Ergo, if you kind of work backwards, bad things are coming into your life. Whoop, 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 whoop. Rewind that, and then you find out you're a bad person. And we may not see it, but God sees it. That's where your problem is, Job. And now you're just a big windbag, wondering why God does such things, wondering why this is happening to you. We, know, we all know why this is happening to you. And it's weird that you're the last one to understand this, because God punishes Sinner. So his two points is that God punishes sinners and he rewards the righteous. Verse 3 and 4, he puts it this way. Negatively, the righteousness of God means that he punishes those that sin. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? He uses a term, that word that we're translating pervert, that means to twist or to bend or to make crooked. In Amos 8, um, Amos the prophet says, says you guys are using or falsifying Weights when you're measuring stuff, you know, it's like, hey, give me, you know, give me this and I'll pay you three shekels. Okay, and you put it on the scale. He's saying you're using false weights. It's crooked. It's a perversion of justice. Or in Ecclesiastes 1, in Ecclesiastes 7, you you are making your path crooked. Justice is a standard justice the term means that something is exactly right it's measured as as it should be and the perversion of justice would be to kind of twist it so there's no longer justice to bend it to what you want it to be and he's saying Job, are you accusing god of injustice are you perverting his justice or claiming that god is not righteous these interesting terms that he uses, God, justice, and righteousness, right? And, uh, and both words ending the two phrases of verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does Almighty pervert righteousness? The reason I bring that up is because these terms come up over and over again in the scriptures. Justice, the term is mishpat. And it means that someone has measured this correctly, that it is, it is even, it is fair, it is right. Um... righteousness or what is right means that uh, that that whatever you have done by your behavior is correct and accurate and measured so they're synonyms but put together they are a perfect description of who God is Abraham says the same thing in Abraham 18 do you remember when God says that he's going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham says dude what if what if there's like some righteous people in there this is literally what he says in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous, the sedek, to death with the wicked, so that the righteous, sedek fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge, Mishpat, right, of all the earth, do what is just or justice or righteous, Mishpat? He's saying, is this not the, the exact Right? Um, the exact characterization, the attribute of who God is in terms of his righteousness. He does what is just, mishpat. And he never perverts what is right, sedek. So he's saying, Job, you're starting to warp God's righteousness and his justice. Because you're not seeing, right, clearly, that the problem is yours. Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen, righteousness and justice, same terms, are the foundation of of God's throne, see this part is true. This part is true, and so often, as we have already said, it's not the theology is bad; it is either limited or applied wrongly. Because it is true that God punishes the wicked, and God always punishes every sin. There is no sin that will get o- that that anyone will get away with in the course of all of humanity, in the course of all of human history, in the course of all eternity. There's no sin that is hidden. There's no sin that is that escapes God's justice. God is absolutely just. But see, to apply that in such a way, to imply, well, see, these bad things must be happening because if you are either if you are blameless, bad things don't happen. If you're secretly wicked, these things, exactly these things happen. To apply God's righteousness in such a way is to claim that Job must be hiding some sort of sin is a misapplication of, a, of an otherwise divine truth. Job doesn't see his suffering as an issue of justice, right? He doesn't see it as as misjustice, meaning like, God, you you messed up. I think you poured your wrath on the wrong dude, right? He doesn't say that. Um, And he doesn't see it as true justice, meaning, I, I know why you're doing this, Lord. It's because I used to cheat the weights, you know, when I used to go into the marketplace or something like that you don't see it as a question of justice but as a question of purpose lord why are you doing this what what is the purpose of this how is this helpful right in your universe to know that that sometimes suffering enters into the life of those that love and try to serve you how can your friends suffer lord that's his question that's his pain and that's him pouring out the darkness of his soul but to build that any question of god's sovereign purposes or the moral code of his rigid righteousness is answered simply by this why Job? because you deserve it not only you but so did your kids look at verse four if your children have sinned against them He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. There's something about legalistic rigidity that turns into human cruelty. Right? Job, listen, I know this is hard for you to hear, but you just got to hear it. God is so righteous, that's why he killed all seven sons and three daughters. Your kids, they're all dead because of some sin that they were committing. I don't know what sin it is. I'm not God. But clearly God knew. And they didn't get away with it. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. It is their transgression. Calamity comes because of sin. In the words of Thanos, it's a simple calculus, little one. It is. He is simplistically certain that... A equals B always. God's justice comes, right, for those that sin. And in that simplistic simplistic and rigid formula, you just have to work backwards and realize your kids got killed in their youth when they're still young because their sin was pretty bad. That's all there is to it. And the insensitivity, the cruelty of a counselor who is so rigid in establishing God's righteous judgment upon this individual. The problem is he's absolutely wrong. We keep going back to John 9. Lord, who was it that sinned to make this man born blind? Was it his parents' sin that made the kid blind? Or was it his sin that made him blind? Jesus makes it clear. It's, It's not either of their sins and jesus isn't saying we just happen to have have run into the only sinless family in the in the universe that's not what he's saying at all they're sinners like you and i they're born with the sin nature and they will sin in the course of this living as certainly as they are human he is saying simply that it is not a direct result of any particular sin that god has caused this individual to be born blind it is for god's glory There's a manifestation, not just of Jesus' willingness to heal him, but the fact that God is the one that can overcome all of the crisis of sin, all of the calamities that results from sin, and that even an entire universe broken because of sin can be reformed by the Creator's hand. It is to God's glory to know that this is not permanent. That if anyone walks by faith, they can be forgiven. It is to God's glory, but that glory is gone or faded if all you can see is the rigidity of you sin, so you're paying for it. You're paying for it, you must have sinned. They died because they deserved it, Job. But listen, here's the good news of religious legalistic rigidity. They died because they deserved it, but God hasn't killed you yet. There's still hope for you. So the positive side of his rigid view of God's righteousness is this. God rewards the righteous. So verse 5 through 7. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. His advice comes in three parts, right? One, one, You need to admit your sin. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. Why would you plead for mercy? Because you've clearly sinned. So if you would recognize Job. Whatever it is that you've been hiding from us all this time. Whatever it is that has caused God to come after you like he has. If you admit that. If you'll seek and plead. And that seeking implies urgency. That pleading implies that he needs to to ask for mercy. Because he has done something wrong. Right, he, he needs to go to God and uh, admit his sinfulness. That part's not bad. That part's good and accurate. If there is something that Job has done, then he needs to, to fess up. He doesn't need to fess up to me. He doesn't need to fess up to Bildad or to Eliphaz or Zophar. But he does need to fess up to God. He needs to recognize his sinfulness before the Lord so that he could plead upon his mercy. That, that's not bad advice. But he adds to that verse 6. If you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. It's not just that you will seek God's mercy and admit your sin, but the second step is you need to be good. You need to be pure and upright. Because if you are, then God will actually get up. He'll rouse himself for you. He'll he'll get up from his seat because right now he's ignoring you, but he'll get up and he'll restore your rightful habitation. In Bildad's worldview, the blessing of your estate is evidence of your righteousness because God curses the wicked but rewards the righteous and thankfully, he hasn't killed you. So whatever your sin is, it's not to the point where it's too late. So you need to confess it. Then you need to live really well and in living well, God might stand up and might restore your rightful habitation and reward you every good thing that you deserve because you are being a good person again. God will prosper you greatly if you hold up your end. Is kind of his argument. I, I know we want to almost see him speaking of grace and mercy, but that's not what is here. The emphasis is on the if you will be pure and righteous And though your beginning was small, verse 7, he says, your later days will be great. He certainly isn't talking about his habitation and everything. Job was considered the greatest man in the East. He's talking about his spirituality. You have been walking a somewhat righteous and maybe unrighteous life. You're small in your spirituality, but your end can be great again. God will bless you again if you do the things that you're supposed to do. See there, again it, the simplistic nature of it, it. It is is why he is applying this wrongly because is that untrue that we should we should confess our sins we should turn to God and we should repent and live more righteously that that all of that is true but the 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 sequence in that is very significant and the motivation in that is very significant we should turn from sin we should confess. And we should seek to live better, not because God will reward us in this life or give us an estate or make our life easier, but because God is worthy. Because He is that kind of God. Because our love and devotion for Him overflows because of His great mercy for us. It is His repentance that draws us, I'm sorry, it is His kindness that draws us to repentance, right? And so you look at the great testimony of confessions in scripture like like psalm 51 right psalm 32 where david is confessing his sins and he says absolutely that if it was just sacrifice you wanted if you need me to do x y and z i could do those things i was doing those things there's no indication that david even after a sin with Bathsheba right after uh, conspiring and murdering uriah the hittite there's no indication that david stopped going to the sacrifices Going to the temple regularly. Offering the evening prayers or or singing psalms. He went through the regular regimen of religious practice. And that's why David realizes, man, if that's all you wanted, then that would be the end of it. But what you want is a broken heart. What you want is my affection. What you want is my desire to honor a God who deserves to be honored and a repentance from sins because this God is worthy, not just because this God will reward. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says this. He says, in any case, if he turns back to God, Bildad says, there's a chance that he'll be wonderfully restored. That's how Bildad's system works, with no grace and no redemptive suffering. What he means by no grace, he means that that Bildad's system has no grace in the sense that it's really on Job to work this out for his own good. He means that there's no redemptive suffering in the sense that all of this suffering has only a singular purpose, and that singular purpose is judgment for your own sins. There's no such thing as redemptive suffering, substitutionary atonement. There's no such thing as someone laying down their life for someone else. Those things do not work. That's not the system that God has made. Everyone pays for their own. And the good news is that since everyone pays for their own, everyone could pay some part of it so that things can get better. It is what every religion believes. There's nothing distinctly Christian about that, right? Every moralistic religion that has ever been believes that God in some ways is sovereign, maybe hard sovereignty, maybe soft sovereignty, but he is in control, he is God. And they also believe that God is righteous, that he demands righteousness. You don't have to come to the cross to hear those, those ideas. But if you come to the cross, then you'll hear a third, and that God is gracious, and that what you could never deserve his son has done for you to pay your sins in full. His is a rigidity that says you just need to accept all of this as God's justice. The second thing we see, Bildad is telling Job that he needs to see the evidence of God's judgment around him. This is verses 8-19. through 19. Take a look at verses 8-10 through 10 first. He says there, we need to trust human tradition. He says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Would they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? He says, Let's lean on the tradition of the fathers. Now, he doesn't really say what the tradition of the fathers is, not in these three verses, but the implication is clear. They will tell you what I'm telling you, that God is sovereign, absolutely, and that God is righteous, absolutely. They would affirm what I am trying to tell you, that the reason why you're suffering is because you're a sinner. You're getting exactly what you deserve because of the particular sin that has caused God to pour his wrath upon you in this moment. Look to the tradition. Look to the fathers. And can I say something? It's an interesting uh, a characteristic of all legalistic religions that they look to tradition. It's a very traditional religious conviction. You just go back. Well, what did the church fathers do? Well, what did these guys do? If you think of the Pharisees, do they not, of all the people in the New Testament, they are the ones that are so rigid about, well, what is the tradition of the fathers? Wait, your disciples, they eat with unwashed hands, and they meant it very clearly. The fathers taught us that you wash your hands in a certain way, you let it drip down off of your elbows. They don't do that when they eat. They're sinners. That's wicked. The tradition of the elders tells us that we're not supposed to work our animals. Right? So based on that, even our, our, our modern uh, Jewish neighbors, on the Sabbath, when, on the Friday, when the sun goes down, they have to walk to their synagogue. Right? Because by extension, you don't work your horse, but since we don't ride horses, we drive them. Right? We, have, we have cars, and you don't work your automobile. That's like riding your horse, so you need to walk. Where do we get that? From scripture? No, we get that from tradition. And so he leans in on human tradition. And he says, we need to trust human tradition because that's where this all comes from. This is the affirmation of the evidence that we do what we're supposed to do and God rewards us. Bildad sees tradition as evidence of God's relationship to man as being tit for tat. You do good, I give you good. You do bad, I give you bad. Correct yourself to a little good, and I kind of, I scale that back a little bit, right? And the degree to which you do bad is the degree to which I will pour bad into your life. This is how God works, and do not the elders and the tradition of the fathers teach us that. What he doesn't see is that where he's lacking is he's leaning in on mere human tradition, because he might be right. There might even be some writings of some, some early fathers that are saying that this is how God acts. But there's more to, to understanding how God acts and who God is than simply human tradition. The second, the second um, source of his evidence of seeing God's judgment is you need to look at nature's example and nature's warnings as well as, and I'll take you both, Um, nature's blessings See, you you notice how he keeps doing that the negative um, the you know the bad will receive bad the good will receive good and he uses the illustration from from nature or from general revelation he says in verse 11 through 15 right can papyrus grow where there's no marsh can reeds flourish where there is no water yet while in flower and not uh, and not cut down they wither before any other plant Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He begins with the illustration from nature of the papyrus plant. Right? Um, Cyperius papyrus. That's the scientific name. Now you know, right? Um, it's a plant that's famous uh, for growing along the the banks of the Nile. It grows in marshes, as as Bilad, who seems to be a scientist, right, kind of observes. And and this these are plants. These are reeds that grow up to sixteen feet tall. These are huge. They're used for paper in the, in, in the Old Testament and onward. In fact, much of our Old Testament scriptures that have been preserved and copies of our New Testament scriptures that have been preserved are, are preserved on papyrus documents, on papyrus uh, sheets that, you know, that have been turned to paper. So there's a significant plant that they would all recognize, and they need water to establish themselves. But as soon as water is cut off, what happens? Their flourishing is gone. They're, yet, they're in the middle of trying to flower. No one's cut them down, but they wither away, according to verse 2. Uh, probably a slight dig on, on his own children, right? they were about to flower. They're just old enough. They're probably about to get married, or maybe they're young and married, and it, they weren't, they, their, God had to wither them down, right? Such are the paths of all who forget God. The godless shall perish, and the implication is that Job is part of that godless. And if he's not careful, he'll be like the godless kids. They've perished. And Job is getting close. See, the problem is Job's. Job is godless. But, but he won't admit it. And the f- fragility, right, of being a sinner, unwilling to recognize your sin, is like spider's webs. You're confident, but your confidence will be cut down because it's like walking through a spider's web. Now, I understand that a spider's web, you know, to to a fly, it's pretty strong. But we ain't flies, right? Walk through spider's web all the time. Ah, oh, you know, and it bothers us because it's in our face. But, but it has no capacity to hold us back. So it's like leaning on a house, he says, but it doesn't stand. A paper house, right? It's like... Leaning on a roof that is, that is uh, termite ridden. You fall through. It, you can lay hold of it, but it won't endure. This is what nature warns us, Job. Do you not see it around you? And then he says, nature also tells us about um, the potential blessing that is to come. Verse 16 through 19. He can be a lush plant before the sun. His shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine stone heaps. He looks upon the house of stones, and meaning that there is security and structure and strength. If he is destroyed, even if something happens to his place, and he's removed, and his community says, man, I don't know you, behold, he can flourish again, right? This is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. See, in the same context of this is why God killed your kids, you can have more kids. Things can be good again. You can get back to your righteous standing if all you do is get things right with the Lord. Now there's a chance that he means this, in, in, uh, uh, that Bildad means this more in the sense of, you know, this is just kind of the general overview. And, uh, and he might be applying verse 16 to 19 to say, Job, you were once lush and now you're broken. That's what you get. But he's probably saying it in that, you know, this, God destroys those that are godless and you're walking that path, but you can come back, you could flourish again. This is the way of joy. You can find your soil springing up with more children again. The blessings can be revived. Job is facing the reality of God's righteousness and his bill has just come due. He's saying, but... You could get back. You could make things right. You could find his goodness again. And we see that illustrated in God's nature, right? In his creation, in natural revelation. Finally, in verse 20 through 22, and this is the concluding part, this is his solution to Job. As directly as he can say it, he says, Job, behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. That statement right there, right? is exactly what we have been saying he has been implying the entire time. God doesn't reject a blameless man and he doesn't take the hand of an evildoer, right? He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Bildad ends with a very direct word for Job. All the yours and yous that are named here in these final three verses are masculine singular. This is a word for Job. He's saying, Job, th- this, this is your solution. This is your way out. And whereas he has demonstrated in point one this rigidity, right, to the point of cruelty, he has demonstrated in point two this observational skill to, to see this self-affirming reality that God's justice is always played out even in his nature, even in his, the world and the creation and everything around us. So then here is the solution, Job, Right? God hasn't done this to you because you're a blameless man. He's done this because you're an evildoer. But turn and he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Look, the end is what you want. You want laughter to come out of you. You want the shouting of joy to come out of you. Right? You want those that are making fun of you because you were once great and are, are, are not great anymore. You want them to be put to shame and you want the wicked to be put out. That's what you want. And if you want that reality, this is how you do it. You get back to doing what is right. You get back to honoring God. It's a simple system, says Christopher Ashe, supported by many centuries of morally serious religious tradition. But is it true? Is it true that the only question, is it true is the only question that matters? If it is true, there will be no undeserved suffering in the universe. And if there's no undeserved suffering, there can be no redemptive suffering, no sacrificial substitutionary suffering. And if there's no substitutionary suffering, there can be no grace. Ultimately, the religious system to which Bildad subscribes is a system devoid of grace and therefore devoid of comfort. It is certainly no comfort to Job, who is, as we know, suffering because his patient faith will bring glory to God, and not because he is being punished for his sins. There's a a great criticism of Bildad, the moralist. He is convinced, man, if you would just do what is right, he will fix you, because that's what God does. It is echoed in, in in the taunt of the religious people that are gathered around the cross in Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God, allegedly. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. He claimed to be the son of God. You hear their taunt, right? If God really loves him, God will bring him down. If, if he really is righteous, he's not going to die because he couldn't deserve that. The righteous cannot suffer. It's kind of this closed system. And it's wrong. Both the jubilation of the righteous and the humility of I and mean, the humiliation of the wicked As being the only ways that God works is incorrect. According to Bildad, the good news is that God will bless you again if you correct your ways. Good news is the right term because good news, our term in the New Testament good news is gospel. Right? And so that we're clear, the gospel is not that God does good to those who are willing to do good first. You know that whole God helps those who help themselves? That's certainly not a Christian statement, right? That's not a, that, that's not, um, a biblical statement. That that sounds kind of like you need to fix yourself and then God kind of steps in. The gospel is not God will help you because you are helping yourself. It's not that God does good, right, um, to those that that earn it. It is the opposite, that He loves us and because He loves us, we learn to love Him. 1 John 4, 19, we love... Because God first loved us. Or Romans 5, 6-8. While we were still weak at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, not for the trying, but for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it is true that the path of the wicked should end in destruction. If it doesn't, then God's righteousness is not absolute. It it is true that the path of the righteous should end eternal blessing. If it doesn't, then God's God's righteous reward, the positive nature of his righteousness, right, um, is not as powerful or sovereign as we would expect. The problem is we're not righteous. The problem is, we are all sinners. Every person gathered in this room, we are sinners. Is there a righteous one among us? According to the scriptures, no. There is no righteous among us, not even one. Psalm 14, quoted in Romans 3.10. So what do we do if it is true what Bildad is saying? That God's justice is absolute. And we are sinners. Now we might not have sin to deserve like all the calamity that comes upon us. Job certainly did it. But nevertheless, he is a sinner. So what can be done for sinners like you and I or Job? And Job seems to understand that by faith, he has to trust in the forgiveness that only God can grant. And his righteousness means that something's got to pay. The blood of animals, the blood of bulls and goats, according to Hebrews 11, cannot fully satisfy the sins of human beings. So we turn to Romans 3. And let me close with this passage. You could turn there. Romans 3, starting at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want you to hear that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Because I think this is where the scriptures will break with Bildad, the moralist, right? I think Bildad would argue the works of the law is the means by which you receive justification in God's eyes. And the scriptures are saying, no, the works of the law, right, cannot be helpful in that. It just brings the the clarity of your sinfulness, Remember in point two, I said that, that in his observational skills, he looks to human tradition, then he looks to, to nature and the way that God has created this universe, natural revelation. Where he does not look is God's word or special revelation. And when we look at at special revelation, is God's scripture inspired and true in Romans three? It says that you cannot be saved by the works of the law. Verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. All the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. By his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness. See, this this is how strong God's righteousness is. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He had let Job live, even though Job deserved to be killed. In fact, every human being deserved eternal damnation, but God has overlooked that. But then how can he be righteous in overlooking their sin? Verse 26. It was to show his justice, his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By the payment of Christ's death, he's able to forgive sinners who would trust in him for forgiveness and salvation. Not because they deserved it, not because they were trying so hard, not because they had a leg up on other people who aren't trying as hard. Only because of who God is a righteous, a sovereign, and a loving God. And for him to declare us righteous before him, even though we're sinners, someone would have to pay for our sins in full. Bildad thinks you just have to do a little bit more good than bad. The scripture says there's not enough good you could possibly do. But you could turn to him in faith. Repent of your sins and ask that the Lord would not just forgive you, but transform your life to be of service to him. Bildad is the stiff moralist. He interprets all of life through the grid of of just God's sovereignty and his righteousness. The Christian is more than that. We affirm perfectly God's absolute righteousness. That's why Christ had to die for our sins so that God doesn't just excuse or pardon us without, without any payment. Every sin has to be paid in full by us or by the Lord we add the dimension of God's love and His grace and His mercy. And you think, okay, well, that, that's the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is different. Well, let me read you a passage from the Old Testament God. Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation god does not mess around with sin but he is also a merciful and tender-hearted god whose grace is extended to us and his righteousness is granted to us because he paid your sins on the cross of jesus christ see bildad has A good starting point, but he doesn't have the gospel. We have the gospel. And we begin this week, this holy week, hopefully in remembrance of the gospel and the work of God to grant to us a righteousness that we could never earn or deserve, right? A life that we could never possibly deserve because of what Christ has done for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And how without your divine scriptures, Lord, we, we would be lost as well. We'd probably be moralists. We'd probably be individuals that are just doing their best or having to accept that uh, no matter what we do, we will all fa- all, always fall short. And Regardless of how we understand these things, we recognize your favor is cast upon us, not because we deserved it or because we earn it or because we are decent or we are even better than others, but simply because you chose to love us. And you demonstrate that love by sending your son to take our place in your divine wrath. So help us to understand the righteousness that we receive from Christ, not on the basis of deeds or works of the law, but because we have trusted solely and absolutely upon him. And help us to live out that life of grace, even in our counsel, even in our care, even our love and our, our experience and relationship with one another. Let it be seasoned with the grace that is the true distinctive of the Christian life. We praise you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.